0: No one would have believed in the early years of the 21st century that our world was being watched by intelligences greater than our own.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to Every Version Ever. My name is Jonathan North and today we're continuing our series on H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds with the 2005 Steven Spielberg film War of the Worlds. Joining me for this episode is my friend Eli Sansa, who is a huge fan of Spielberg's work, so I thought he'd be a great guest for this one. This was the very first adaptation I ever saw, and I was really excited to revisit for this podcast.
0: Yet, across the gulf of space, intellects, vast and cool and unsympathetic, regarded our planet with envious eyes. And slowly, and surely, do their plans against us.
1: So I guess to start, we should talk about your history with War of the Worlds. Have you read the book? I have
2: only heard of the novel written by H.G. Wells um, mm-hmm. and the radio play by Orson Welles okay. that, that caused kind of a, a big stir when people were listening to it because he was so realistic when he was narrating it that it seemed like an actual news report. Mm-hmm. But I have never actually read the book or seen any version of the film until the Steven Spielberg version came along. And that was my first exposure to it. So I have very limited knowledge about any version, but that one. And, and I have no comparison to the novel.
1: Okay. So did you watch this when it was in theaters or just recently?
2: I watched it when it was new, uh, but I didn't watch it in theaters. I watched it on DVD because I was watching back in like 2000 and like 2008 or 2007. I was like getting into all the Spielberg movies because I was becoming a fan of him in my budding film geek days. And so that was one of the films that I watched it, along with Cinder's List and Saving Private Ryan. I was like marathoning him. and. Okay. So, so yeah, so that was when I first watched it on DVD, and I was borrowing a bunch of films from the library, uh, expanding my film knowledge. And I haven't watched it in a long time. The last time I watched it was in those days, but then I watched it again recently because it's on HBO Max. Uh-huh. So I checked it. I checked it out, and I noticed some things about it that I didn't like as much as I did the first time I watched it, but. Mm-hmm it was still it was still good and i still like i still thought it was a solid solid movie overall in my revisit
1: yeah i think it's probably been about that long since i've seen it too because i watched it when it was in theaters because weirdly enough i grew up with this book like i had an abridged version of the war of the worlds and i loved that book even though when i was really young it terrified me yeah. but I I still, I eventually read it, and I loved it, even though it was terrifying. (laughs) So I was really excited in 2005 when they released a movie version, because I had never seen a movie version. I knew there was one from the 50s. I had never seen it. Uh, I don't even know if our library had it. That would have been the only way I would have been able to watch it. So, this was the first movie version that I ever watched, I believe. And I was really excited. I went to the theater by myself, which I pretty much never did. Like, this was new when I was newly getting into movies, like going to the theater. Because before 2001, we never went to the theater. And then we slowly went to movies. And then by 2005, I was going to more, not on my own, but like I would have, I would go with a friend or a family member. But this one I went to on my own because I was excited to see this movie and nobody else wanted to watch it. So I went alone. So I feel like my perspective coming into this might be the reverse of yours because I was very critical of this movie when I first watched it. Like, I didn't hate it but i was picking it apart so much because it was so different from the book and back then that was like the standard for a movie based on a book like how close was it to the book and this movie was not very close to the book
2: <laughs> okay so you're saying it was it deviated from the book in significant ways
1: oh extremely deviated from the book <laughs> they basically took the idea of from the book and a few key scenes that they translated into modern day. None of the characters, aside from one, which we'll get to when we get to that scene, are anywhere close to the book. The, they basically made up their own characters. Like, not, the, the main character is not the same character from the book. It's, it's a completely different story, but just a similar idea from the book.
2: That is interesting because when I was watching the movie, I, I noticed that it had a lot of Steven Spielbergian qualities to it that reminded me a little bit of E.T., like when you're talking about how like the, the dad was sort of estranged from kids and that was, mm. and like estranged dads are kind of like uh, similar themes in, in Spielberg's filmography. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a feeling... Some of the stuff in that movie was stuff that he made up. But, but I didn't know until now that like uh, there was no character in the War of the Worlds novel named Ryan. And he didn't have a daughter named Rachel and a son named Robbie.
1: The main character, I believe, was named Ray. Either way, uh, okay. he didn't exist. The main character actually, in the book, didn't even ever get a name. His wife was never named. Um, none of the main characters were named at all. One side character was named. Well, a few side characters were given names, but they never stuck around very long.
2: It's uh, Wow, it's it's hard for me to imagine how you can even write that book.
1: The book, I think, was sort of written to be as if it were documenting something happening, not exactly from a scientific perspective, but maybe semi-journalistic. It was written in the first person, like this guy was ta- writing down everything that he witnessed when this attack happened. Uh-huh. okay. So he never named himself, he only referred to his wife as his wife, he only referred to his brother as his brother, and anyone he met, unless they said their name or he knew their name, he referred to them as what they were. Wow. So very few characters in the book actually got names. So the, that in itself is completely different from this movie because you pretty much get names for anybody who is a main character.
2: Okay, well, I don't blame Spielberg for changing of that part of the narrative.
1: Mm-hmm. I, and really, I can't either. But at the time, I was very critical about how much it was different. Like, I knew it was going to be different because this is set in modern day and in America, and the original novel is set at the end of the 1800s in the UK. So completely different setting already.
2: Yeah, exactly, yeah.
1: So I guess we can start going into the movie and talk about different things that happened. And then I guess I can enlighten you on what was different and how I felt about it. And I guess how I feel now, because I feel differently now than I did then.
2: Right. You said that when you watched it in the theater the first time, you said, you did did you not like it when it comes
1: I didn't dislike it, but I was very critical of all the changes. And I am a lot more forgiving of that now.
2: Ah, okay. So when you said that you started out not liking it as much, but now you like it more, uh, you said that was the opposite of how I felt, which is when I... I kind of loved it when I first saw it, but now I'm sort of more critical. <laughs> so uh-huh. I'm kind of reverse it, right?
1: Yeah. So at the beginning, we open with kind of an unsettling score. This is John Williams, and this is this is one of his scores that I actually bought. I'm not sure why I was drawn to this. I think I just liked the fact that it was The War of the Worlds and John Williams, so I bought the score. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, it was a good score.
1: Yeah. At the beginning, it's not even really music. It's just kind of this tone, and I I really like that now. It's unsettling. Yeah. And you're kind of zooming in on the bacteria in a drop of water, which then it zooms out to reveal like a bigger landscape. It's like on a leaf, I think, and then you see all the people around. But you have narration by Morgan Freeman, and he is reciting a passage from the book But he's taken one line and changed it, similar to how they did in the 53 version, because I have since watched the 53 version. So they changed the line. No one would have believed in the, I think it's in the last years of the 19th century, because that's when it happened in the book. And now they've got it. No one would have believed in the early years of the 21st century that our world is being watched right. by intelligences greater than our own. Right. I, I really like that line. There's, there's some really iconic lines in the book. And as far as I've seen of other versions, they usually try and slip those lines in there somewhere, either at the beginning or the end. And I really like that they had that at the beginning. And I really like that right. they got Morgan Freeman to do it.
2: Yeah, me too. Me too.
1: So then we meet the main character, Ray Ferrier who is, like I said, completely different character from the book. Everything from here to the point where the aliens come down is completely original to this movie. So we meet Ray. He's a dock worker. He works in a crane. And you learn right away that he's divorced, and he meet, you meet his kids, played by Dakota Fanning and Justin Chatwin. And Dakota Fanning, this is one of her big, I don't know if, it, I don't think it was like her big break film, but it's one that I immediately recognize her as because she had like a few where she was this age that she played in. And I think that's kind of what made her a household name, especially this and like a completely opposite type of movie, Charlotte's Web.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: And I realized this time that his ex wife, I think her name was Marianne, is played by Miranda Otto, who played Aowen in The Lord of the Rings. I don't know how I didn't remember that. I'd completely forgotten that if I even recognized her at all.
2: Ah, uh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. And then right away you see there's a lot of tension in this family. And I guess this is probably my biggest issue with this entire movie. And I know that this is the point. Like the movie as a whole is supposed to be about this guy becoming a better dad because he is a terrible father. (laughs) It's pretty obvious (laughs) why he's divorced. He's basically, he's only thinking of himself and the family is just very dysfunctional. And there's, there's so much tension in these scenes and it just, it grates on me. And I think it's supposed to, but I feel like I don't know. That kind of brings it down a bit for me. Right. Uh,
2: <laughs> supposed to set up the fact that Tom Cruise's character was like a, not a great guy. And mm. eventually when it comes to the movie, to the plot, when he's trying to protect his kids from the aliens, it's like, okay, well now they're going to turn this terrible guy into a hero and he's going to redeem himself. I felt, I, thought, I sort of felt like that was the setup they were going for.
1: Yeah. And for the most part, I think they did a decent job with that. But it also felt like it took way too long for them to become a family unit. And even even by the end, you barely get there with Robbie, his son.
2: Yeah, It wasn't that very satisfying an ending, really. But, but we, we'll get to that.
1: Yeah. So you have some scenes of them like trying to get along (laughs) they try to play catch and the dad breaks the window because he's basically fighting with his son and then he just kind of storms off to his room and tells his daughter to order food at some point ray realizes that robbie is gone and rachel just tells him that he left so he's outside looking for him and then there's a storm over their house It's basically unlike any storm in real life. I don't think there's any storm that actually behaves the way this storm was behaving. The wind is like blowing towards the storm and all of a sudden it's like pure silence and then lightning from the middle of the storm. And at first, Ray, I think, thinks it's fun and Rachel does not. She's worried about Robbie And then everything is quiet. There's no electricity, no phone, even their watches have stopped. And I'm kind of thinking that this part is a reference to the 53 version, because in the 53 version, well, the the way the aliens arrived is completely different in the 53 version, but at some point, there's basically an EMP and it takes out all the electricity and even stops watches. The difference in this scene, though, is that it also stops the cars. Back then, the cars did not stop, and I'm thinking that that might be more due to the fact that cars today are more electronic than they were in the 50s, so I don't think that they would have even thought to have an EMP take them out. Not that either situation is realistic, but in this version, the EMP takes out the cars. So, at some point, Robbie comes back, and he says that the lightning opened a hole in the ground, And Ray goes to investigate. And this is where you get the major deviation. I think the one that bothered me the most the first time I saw this. Because in the book, the aliens arrive in cylinders. They were basically fired from Mars because at the very beginning of the book, there are people observing explosions or flashes on the planet Mars. And in this one... The aliens, their ships are already on Earth. They've been buried under the Earth for who knows how long. A character later speculates they've been here for like millions of years, but there's no answer as to when these ships were buried. So this lightning is basically the aliens arriving. They're riding the lightning, I guess, and inserting themselves into the ships, which are buried. And then these holes left by the lightning, start to move and expand, and cracks are forming, and they're breaking up buildings. And then there's basically a crater that these tripods crawl out of. And when you first see the first glimpse of something, it's a giant hand, which is the foot of the tripod, reaching out to like get a hold of something to be, be able to lift itself out. And I think the design of the hand is a reference again to the 53 version because it seems to be, at least from what I can tell, it looks like it is shaped like the alien's hands from the 53 version. I know that probably, you probably won't be able to comment on that because you haven't seen that. But to me, that's what it looked like. Just the shape with the little... Not, not really suckers on the hands, but just the round f- ends of the fingers. It just, it looked like that to me. I haven't
2: seen that, the 50s version, but I'm not surprised that there are references to it because I'm sure Steven Spielberg is a fan of that movie because sci-fi films from the 1950s, like uh, creatures from 20,000 Fathoms and uh, It and like, stuff like that, were references that he always makes in his interviews and mm-hmm. so yeah, I'm, not, I'm not surprised that just, like, he's paying homage because that was around the time he was a kid, I think, was when he was watching. He's a baby boomer, so I'm not surprised.
1: Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's, there are more references that I feel that I think I caught and there might be more that I didn't catch, but I wrote down a few more later on too that I'm fairly certain are references to the 53 version. So then the ship actually emerges from this crater And it makes this noise that I love. Like, it is a horrifying, like, a hoot noise. It's like a honk, but so deep and bellowing. It's, like, horrifying, but I love it. It's it's one of my favorite parts of this movie. I don't know why. I just love this terrifying noise that these tripods make.
2: Well, it's the creative, because I was like, "It's I don't know how they came up with that noise, but it was terrifying, though.
1: Yeah, it's like a foghorn, but worse.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So then you get the first glimpse of the heat ray, which the heat ray is in the book. That's like their main weapon. Basically, it's just a ray of heat that incinerates anything, but it behaves differently in this version, because when it hits the people it's like it incinerates the person but it leaves their clothes so you have like this explosion of like ash and then the clothes are fluttering down and it's like horrifying but to me it was like a really creative choice just to leave the clothes it sort of reminds me of i don't know how good this comparison is but it reminds me of the left behind series Like, I used to be obsessed with that series because, like, my whole family, we grew up in like, super conservative. So this is, like, the the scariest book we were allowed to read was Left Behind. (laughs) And just the imagery of the clothes being left behind when the person disappears, it was like that, except with the added horror of the person having been incinerated instead of beamed away to heaven.
2: Well, you're describing one of the most memorable parts of the movie when I first watched it, because I remember being hella terrified when I first saw people getting disintegrated by the alien thieves. Mm-hmm. And it actually, this, this is one of the things about the movie that I think is most effective, that I think makes it like, despite its flaws, I think makes it work because it really feels a lot like a horror film. That's what I feel like Spielberg was going for. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, it's, it's sci-fi and there's action, but it's more like a horror film. And even John Williams' score supports that a little bit because he's very menacing with his music choices. And also the movie is completely terrifying too. And I, and I feel like they did a good job conveying the fear of the unknown that is like, completely destructive and killing people and you don't know what it is and you don't know how to stop it and you don't know where it came from and, and they did a really good job with the horror aspect which I was sort of surprised by because I don't normally associate Spielberg with horror but he did well with mm-hmm. this I think. I think and I think he did it intentionally.
1: Yeah at first thought I wouldn't think of this as a horror movie but now that you mention it it really does have a lot of horror elements. Another thing about this scene that I have read is very purposeful. It's supposed to evoke imagery from 9-11, especially Ah. the people running through the streets covered in ash. Like in this case, it's the ash of disintegrated people, but there were a lot of images and video footage after 9-11 of people fleeing the area covered in ash from the building for the dust from the rubble. And this was specifically supposed to evoke scenes like that. There's a lot of references to like terror attacks and nine 11 in this movie that are subtle enough to miss. But if you know that they're there, it's very obvious.
2: Yeah, yeah. They, aside from the fact that they're actually mentioned in the movie, is this are these terrorists attacking us right now? Like, yeah. you could sort of tell because the timeline of when he worked mm-hmm. on this movie and when September 11th took place like, makes that like very not surprising.
1: Yeah, that line is it the terrorists? That was Rachel specifically after yeah. the He runs back after the first attack. He gets his kids, and then they steal a car. He knew that there was a car being worked on in a a mechanic shop that he told the mechanic how to fix. And he tries to get the guy who fixed it to come with them, but he won't listen, and then he's incinerated behind them.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Which...
1: That scene slightly annoyed me, because this thing is making a ton of noise, even though it's hidden behind buildings. Why isn't this mechanic more frightened? He seems like he's just having a normal day.
2: (laughs) Until he gets disintegrated.
1: Like, he doesn't even realize. I I noticed
2: that. I thought it was weird. Like I I feel like if I were directing this movie, I I would have gone a different direction there, because I feel like it was weird that... I know that they were trying to convey that it was a suspenseful moment because he was not letting him go and, and Mm -hmm. he needed to go and that was supposed to build suspense. But I feel like it was not based in uh, uh, common sense because (laughs) what did, what was this guy thinking was happening? Did he, did did he miss the memo?
1: Mm -hmm. So then they have this car, they're driving down the freeway where every other car is stopped. So they're like dodging and weaving in and out of traffic Rachel is basically in hysterics, and this is another thing that slightly annoyed me. Even though I understand uh-huh. her reaction, I understand that yeah. she is basically like ten or eleven. She's freaking out. I get it, but it kind oh, of annoyed me that she it happens so often.
2: Yeah, you know, you know, what? I I actually I know you're not criticizing Dakota Fanning as an actress because she because no. she's really good. Yeah, oh, She's a great screamer,
1: uh, that's for sure.
2: <laughs> she really is. She, she, she did a good job like making the moment even more intense, actually, yeah. because like screaming children stressed me out. So it was actually <laughs> effective.
1: So then you have the dad is basically explaining what he thinks is happening, and they're planning to go to their mom's house. She's not there. She's in Boston because before she left, she told him they were going to see her parents. So he knows the house is empty and he thinks they'll be safe there. And then you get another fight. It's another scene that annoyed me just because like you you just left what is is basically a war zone. (laughs) It didn't seem realistic that you would just have this fight. And end up splatting a peanut butter sandwich on the window because you're mad. <laughs> Just <don't tell> me. <laughs> right. I, Right.
2: I, the scene with him like making the sandwich, I was trying to get into his mindset there because it was like I think I think he was like saying, Okay, we are in a stressful situation, we are all scared. I'm going to try to calm everybody down by having a normal family dinner and mm-hmm. everyone will <laughs> Everyone will be calm, and maybe I'll return to normalcy. But like, if you could, I feel like any, even even an adult who wasn't the father of those children could tell that that wasn't going to do anything because of the look of like like horror in their on their face so after what they just witnessed. You would just assume. I don't think these. I don't think these people want to eat a sandwich right now.
1: Yeah, you you know, it kind of this. I don't, I just thought of this. This scene reminds me of the dinner scene in the movie Signs. Have you seen Signs?
2: I have not. Sorry.
1: Okay, well, for anybody out there who has seen Signs, there is a scene where Mel Gibson and his family are eating dinner, and they're they're on edge because of everything that has happened in this movie, and it's getting towards the climax of the film, and they have a big fight, and This feels like that, except not executed as well as it was in signs. Because in signs, they have this big fight that's really awkward and really uncomfortable, and it ends up with the entire family hugging as they wait for the next onslaught to happen. And it was really effective and really well done. And this feels like they were trying to do that but didn't get
2: there. Oh, this the sandwich scene was sort of less heartfelt, I thought. (laughs) Yes.
1: And, And the end of the scene in Signs was a lot more heartfelt. Right. So after this scene, they go to sleep in the basement because they don't know what's coming next. And they're woken up by, it seems at first like it's lightning. And then you realize it's not lightning. There's like this terrible electronic screaming noise and it seems like an earthquake and then there's fire and then they hide in what i could not tell what it was but it seemed like a bunker i don't know the apparently the mom has like a bunker in the basement or something
2: (laughs) yeah i don't yeah i don't know Uh,
1: the next day they discover the houses in ruins because a plane has crashed on it so yeah, right. their, their, their time is just getting worse and worse.
2: What and, are the odds of that, by the way?
1: No, yeah, I know. <laughs> the, <laughs> the weird thing about this scene was there don't appear to be any bodies. And I don't know if that's because the aliens have taken them or what. It just seems so odd that there's this plane that's basically in half and there is no bodies. It's yeah, just yeah, yeah. Yeah. i like it's yeah. I don't think there was even like clothes, so it's not like they were incinerated. I don't really know what was going on there or what it was supposed to mean. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I, I, I was so in the mindset of Tom Cruise in that scene of uh how I would react if a plane fell on the house I was inside that I didn't even think about that because I was too busy focusing on, oh my god, a plane just landed on my house.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it was just a weird thing that I noticed because I don't think I noticed it the first time I watched it, and I I was looking specifically to see if I could see anyone here, and I didn't see anybody.
2: Yeah, it was weird. Now that I think of it, there was no no bodies, but there were just, there was there were people inside the plane, but
1: mm-hmm. there were no
2: dead people, no dead people inside the plane. It was sort of weird.
1: Yeah, the people in the plane are apparently like a news crew. They said something about being stationed with the army, like they've been following the army to report on what they were doing. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but they were separated from them, apparently. And then they were like raiding the plane for supplies. And one of the reporters takes him inside, and she shows him these tapes of the attack, and specifically one of when the first the The tripod in his area was activated, and they have slowed down footage of the lightning, and you can see something inside the lightning. So that that was confirmation of how the aliens got into the ships. They rode the yes. lightning down into the ships.
2: Yeah, because they apparently buried the ships at some unspecified time, and now they're finally <laughs> returning to them to the pilot them. Mm-hmm.
1: And then there's like the sound of the tripods in the distance and the reporters decide to get out of there. And before they leave, this is kind of weird. I thought she asks if he was on the plane. And when he says, no, she says, that's too bad. It would have been a great story. But that I was thinking like he was in the house that the plane crashed on top of. <laughs> that is also a great story. <laughs> I-
2: yeah that didn't register with me also it was that was weird
1: so then they leave as well and robbie for some reason he wants to go and fight the aliens i think this is supposed to be a reference to kids after 9-11 wanting to join the army to go get back at the terrorists i don't know it just his amount of I don't want to say enthusiasm because he didn't seem enthusiastic, but he was like, yeah. so angry that he, he wanted to do something.
2: He was the adamant. He was adamant.
1: Yes, that's that's the good word for it. He wanted so badly to get away and go join the army to fight them. I don't know. It just it bothered me that he would want to go so badly and leave, even though he had a bad relationship with his father. Just leaving his sister especially because throughout the movie it is made very obvious that his sister loves him a lot more than she loves her father. Like anytime horrible happens, she runs to Robbie, not Ray.
2: (laughs) They did a good job building up the relationship between the brother and sister that they had a close bond.
1: Yeah. So that makes it, I don't know, just worse. I look at him worse because of that, because he wants to leave so badly that he's willing to just leave her behind. It just annoys me that he would want to do that. And I guess maybe you can blame it on the trauma of the situation, but like she needed him and he, he, he cares, but not enough that he want, is willing to stay. Cause at any point that he sees the army from here on out, he wants to leave.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's, I, I kind of uh, go back to this a lot whenever I review films, but I I talk about the likability of characters and how it's an important thing because I feel like if you don't like the characters, you're not going to be as invested in the problems that they go through.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I feel like this movie... Slightly suffered from that a little bit. Not enough that it ruins it, but yeah. there's a little bit of that in yeah. the characters in the film.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Especially Robbie.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> then you get a scene where Rachel has to go to the bathroom and they get out of the car and he tells her to stay where he can see her. But of course she doesn't want to. And I, I can't exactly yeah. blame her. But yeah. <laughs> she ends up over a hill out of sight near a river, and then she sees bodies floating down the river. And I guess my question is where did these bodies come from? <laughs>
2: I think that's a good question. I wonder.
1: Because you find out later the aliens are taking people or they are incinerating them. It's one or the other. They're not killing people and leaving the bodies. Right. So it just seemed weird that you would have this mass of bodies floating down the river. I don't know. It just uh, it seemed weird and I had questions that weren't answered there.
2: I I feel like the unanswered questions thing is sort of like uh, throughout this movie, it's kind of making itself an issue throughout. It seems a little bit like it
1: might have been
2: a little bit lazily written, possibly. Uh, that's what I think.
1: Yeah, kind of. Now I don't think completely lazily written, but there are issues I think that could have or should have been addressed before a final draft. I don't know. I just for things like that, I just wanted a little more explanation
2: well that you know that kind of stuff isn't important to the plot, so it's not essential that you understand it, but it is it it does sort of like it's like a little bit of a a, a hanging thread,
1: yeah. So the next big scene here is at the ferry. You first have this scene where their car is stolen from them. And I guess this scene is probably the, the one similar to, for people who have listened to the first episode of the podcast where I talked about the different characters in the War of the Worlds, the way they behaved as disturbing me more than the actions of the aliens. This lines up with that. Because you have this yeah, yeah. mass of people, you don't know who they are, they basically just attack and hijack their car from them. And it's just, I guess, a, a look at the worst of humanity that I hated, but at the same yeah. time, it was really effective. So yeah, even yeah. though I hated what was happening, it I guess it's a good look at what people can be when they let their... Base instincts take over.
2: Yeah, I, I thought that was effective too. It kind of it reminded me of a lot of apocalyptic themed shows and movies. It's like the worst of humanity comes out when mm-hmm. terrible things happen. It's interesting that they go back to all the time, and it was effective here.
1: Mm-hmm. So then they have to walk the rest of the way to the ferry, and you have a quick scene before they get there that I don't think it was supposed to be funny, but. There was something about the way it was timed that just, it seemed funny, even though it was not funny. It just seemed like they meant it to be funny. I don't know. Basically, they come to a a train crossing, and you hear the ding, 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 and the arm lowering. And then this train, fully engulfed in flames, roars by them faster, probably faster than a train should be going, and just... You you just see this flaming train for quite a while because it's so long it just roars past and the entire thing is engulfed in flames and then it's gone and then ding 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 and the arm goes up again and I'm like that's, that's, that's not supposed to be funny but it seemed unintentional <laughs> <funny to me. laughs>
2: uh, yeah it was weird uh, it was weird I didn't really. It was kind of like the river of corpses. It was like, I wonder how that happens.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. but I don't know. I feel this one didn't ke- strike me as something that needed more explanation because I yeah, just yeah. assumed that it got blasted by the heat ray. It just stuck out in right. my mind just because of the timing and the way it was shot with the the dinging train arm going down the flaming train rushing past and then the, the dinging train arm going back up again, yeah, letting them cross. I don't know. It just seemed like it was supposed to be funny and it wasn't supposed to be funny, but I laughed. Anyway.
2: <laughs> well, I feel like that was a nice touch. I mean, I mean, at least it like it was entertaining.
1: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it was supposed to be entertaining in that way intentionally, but I found it so right. anyway. <laughs> Right. So then they actually get to the ferry, and then you have—it's kind of a blink and you'll miss it moment. But it's—I to me, it's supposed to be like the opposite of the worst of humanity because you have somebody calling for blood donation and basically saying that unless you're these specific types of blood, they don't need anymore because they've had so many people donating blood. So uh, yeah. I think they're trying to show that. Even when humanity can be is at its worst, there are still people who are willing to do the right thing. But it was such a uh, brief moment that it didn't really offset the horror of that long scene of the car <laughs> project. So yeah, um, <laughs> I guess take that yeah. as what you will. That was just something that I noticed that it was kind of nice to see, even though it didn't last very long.
2: Yeah, there were a lot of very like nice moments in the movie. They, they were sort of overshadowed.
1: Yes, definitely. So then they're getting on the ferry, and they meet somebody that Ray knows, someone named Cheryl and her daughter Nora. And this was kind of weird, because I I knew I recognized Cheryl from somewhere, but I could not find her in the credits, and I could not find her on IMDb, I had to find a War of the Worlds wiki page before I figured out that in the credits, she's credited as bartender, which makes absolutely no sense because she has a name. He calls her by name multiple times. Her name is Cheryl. They never mention that she's a bartender. So I don't know how anybody is supposed to figure out who she was. But anyways, I looked her up after finding this wiki page, and the actress's name is Lisa Ann Walter. And I figured out that I recognized her because she played Jessie in the remake of The Parrot Trap from the 90s. Oh. So if you've seen that, then you know who I'm talking about.
2: Okay. Something I would have never known until you pointed it out. Wow.
1: Yeah. I I didn't know right away. I had to look her up. I just knew that I knew her from somewhere and I couldn't put my finger on where. It's been ages since I've seen that movie.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, someone needs to get into contact with her and ask her why they called her a bartender.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So then they're trying to get on the ferry, and they're going to keep Cheryl and Nora with them, but that doesn't last long because they are quickly separated, and Cheryl and Nora end up getting left behind on the pier while they're on the ferry. And then I think this is the movie's take on a scene from the book with the attack on the HMS Thunderchild, which is a ship in the book. And there's this whole scene with the tripods and the ship fighting in the water. I think this is their take on that, just translated into this version. So this ferry is capsized, everybody ends up in the water, And then this is the first time you see that the aliens aren't just wanting to kill everybody because you have these tripods putting out these probe-like arms and basically snatching everybody out of the water. And it's really creepy and effective. And I liked how creepy it was. (laughs) Like, it was really well done. Just the way these things were moving, it was just creepy.
2: Yeah, and, and, and Industrial Light and Magic did a good job with animating them, too.
1: Yeah. So they don't get grabbed. They end up being able to swim out and get to land. And I think they're on the mainland at this point. They're away from, I guess, Manhattan. I guess that's where they were. Either way, they're on the mainland. They're trying to make their way to Boston still. And they end up joining what seems to be like a mass migration. There's just people walking walking across the country and there's another scene with the army and robbie runs away and ray chases after him he leaves rachel by this tree and tells her to stay there while he gets robbie and at this time you have these tanks and helicopters and there's basically a battle trying to take down any of these tripods and nothing is working they basically are shielded so they're not putting a dent in anything and ray pins robbie down he won't let him go he might have been successful except he is also distracted by the fact that rachel is almost taken away by this woman who's like she's a well-meaning person she thinks that she's been abandoned so she's trying to get rachel to come with her and he basically ends up leaving robbie robbie says he he has to go he needs to be here He needs to see this and he lets him go so he can run back to rachel and then as soon as Robbie disappears, there's this explosion over the hill. And I guess you just assume that he's died. Because yeah. there's like, it doesn't seem like there's any way that anyone could have survived that. So then they leave this area. There's like this farmhouse off a ways away. And there's this guy yelling at them from the cellar. And Ray tells Rachel that Robbie's going to meet them. Which, for, at first I thought he's just saying this for her protection, like he's not going to tell her that Robbie's dead. But then he tells this guy in the farmhouse that Robbie's going to meet them too. So I don't know if there's some denial going on there or if he thinks he's alive or what, but that's how he's spinning the situation.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So this guy in the cellar, his name is Harlan Ogilvy, and this is the one character that I mentioned earlier who is sort of in the book. He's kind of a compilation of three different characters, all Frankensteined into one. There's a character in the book called Ogilvy, but he's an astronomer. He's at the beginning of the story, and he's one of the first people to get disintegrated by the heat ray. And there's another character who is the one that I first thought that this guy was mainly based on, who is called the curate, who is down in the cellar of a house that the narrator of War of the Worlds stays in. Like, they're trapped there for weeks. They're they're just them two together. And the curate ends up going crazy, and he ends up, well, I'll get to that later. But there's another character also called the Artilleryman in the book, who is towards the beginning and then he shows up again at the end. And he has some lines and ideas that the character in the movie Ogilvy says. Basically his ideas about beating the Martians and rebuilding humanity and even the tunnel thing, being able to tunnel through the ground, that's all from the artilleryman. So this Harlan Ogilvy in the movie just is a mashup of all these characters from the book just put together into one. So the main point of this scene, really this is mostly where the book and the movie are similar. This whole thing under the farmhouse, because that's like one of the big set pieces from the book, the curate and the narrator under the house living for multiple weeks, basically trying to survive while watching the Martians and this is where in the book you find out that the Martians are not exactly eating people, but they're taking people and using them for blood transfusions, which is how they survive. In the book, he talks about how they were studied later and they figured out how the Martians worked. And the Martians back on Mars basically had another creature that they used for blood transfusions. And they found that they brought some of them with them. But when they started running out, they started using humans. Uh, So they've kind of taken that idea, but put their own, I don't know, maybe even creepier twist on it because that's already creepy that they're taking people and using them as for blood transfusions, but they've like ramped that up for this movie. I guess before we get to that, we'll, we'll talk about this first scene under the house you get the first hint of the direction they're going with that because you see the red weed, which is another thing from the book, which I guess in the book, the the explanation for why Mars is a red planet is that it's covered in red weeds, like this plant. So they have brought this red weed with them, and they're using it on Earth. They never say terraforming, but like today we would call it terraforming. They're basically trying to turn earth into their own version of mars by planting this red weed so you get a little glimpse of where that's going with this red weed you see it start at the beginning of this scene and then everything goes quiet and you get another pretty much direct reference to the 1953 version because this probe comes into the house and this is something that happened in the 1953 version it's shot in a very similar way but the effects in this one are like way better than the 53 one because this (laughs) thing moves kind of like a snake like a floating snake and it wasn't quite that smooth in the 53 version it wasn't bad the effects were decent in the 1953 version but this is way better more effective
2: that scene uh, in the 2005 film where the probe is like looking for them and they're trying to hide from it—it mm-hmm. it reminded me of the scene in Jurassic Park when they were trying to hide from the dinosaurs. And <laughs> I
1: thought the Apricotor. same thing.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, see, yeah, it reminded me of that. And I thought that that was—I thought that that was the scene where Spielberg was like that. Spielberg was talking, but it, but now you're saying this it actually existed in the 50s version that seemed similar
1: I, th- I think it might be a combination of both influences because it's, uh, it, is simil- it is similar to the 53 version but I also got shades of the raptors in the kitchen scene because yeah. especially with the mirror when they put up the mirror to hide behind and the eye is yeah, exactly, exactly. It, was just, it was so similar it, it had to be a reference So then this probe ends up leaving. It's been tricked. And you find out that they had been looking into this house, basically to see if it was safe to come in. Because now you get the first glimpse of the aliens themselves. And the aliens, I remember when I first watched this, back when it first came out, I remember really liking the alien design, but also being annoyed because it was so different from the book. (laughs) 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 and i still feel similar but again i am a lot more forgiving now and i just i like the design basically the design kind of mimics the design of the tripods you realize the tripods are almost giant versions of the aliens right even the probes that they send down to grab people is similar to their tiny hands because they have hands in the same position as where the probe arms come out on the ships.
2: Yes, that was the that was what they were going for.
1: But it is, it's super different from the book, because in the book, they're basically described as kind of a bear-sized bulk. Like, they're basically a head with a beak and giant eyes that has tentacles under the beak. They can barely move. And these things are quite ambulatory. They can get around pretty well without the tripods. But uh, in the book, they, they basically were useless on land. They needed the tripods to move.
2: Ah, uh, so it's interesting. So I guess they just decided to change it up so that they could have this one suspenseful scene where they're in the room with them.
1: Mm-hmm. And I thought, I really liked that scene. It, it was really well done.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: And then you have Ogilvy, he wants to shoot them. He has this shotgun, and then he and Ray are basically silently fighting over this gun while the aliens are still in the other room looking around. And I remember reading that this is supposed to be a reference to E.T. because the aliens find a bike and spin the wheel. And I don't really uh, know yeah. if that's supposed to be a reference or not. I don't know if that's somebody something that somebody made up. Just because it's aliens and a bike? I don't know. <laughs>
2: I didn't notice that, but if someone told me that that was an E.T. reference, I, I, I would buy it.
1: <laughs> I guess I could see it, but I would have to watch E.T. again to see if the bike was the same bike, because that's the only way I could see it actually being a purposeful reference, but who knows?
2: Uh, yeah, who knows? You'd have to ask when like, the filmmaker.
1: Ogilvy ends up winning the fight, he gets the gun away from him, but then you hear the tripods honking outside, and the aliens leave. And Ogilvy basically just says to him, I don't think we're on the same page, meaning like you're basically becoming an enemy. And then, then you see more of that idea of what the aliens are doing with the people. This is where they took the idea from the book and then took it in a creepier direction because the red weed is growing exponentially at this point. It's just, you can see the plants growing and there's this mist in the air and they reach up and basically you realize the mist is blood. And you see this guy outside getting drained by the machine and you realize that they're harvesting people to use as fertilizer for the red weed. Yeah. yeah. This is where Ogilvy just snaps he starts screaming not my blood not my blood and he's talking about digging the tunnels and Ray basically realizes that he's going to get them killed and he blindfolds Rachel and tells her to sing a song to herself and you don't see what happens but he goes into where Ogilvy is digging and closes the door and the camera just stays on Rachel until he comes out again And it's basically implied that he killed Ogilvy. And something similar happened in the book, but I'm not sure that the narrator killed the curate because the curate did go crazy and he basically had to beat him unconscious at one point. But I don't think he killed him because in the book, he's just taken away by the aliens because a probe comes in and grabs the curate and takes him out of the house. So I don't think that in the book he actually murdered the guy, but I think it's pretty much implied here that he killed Ogilvy.
2: Yeah, as a person who only watched the movie and never read the book, that's definitely what it seemed like they were implying to me.
1: Mm-hmm. Right after, Rachel crawls into his arms and they fall asleep, and they wake up to another probe like right in their face. Oh, yeah. That was... A really good jump scare. <laughs> like yeah, I, totally. I, I forgot that it happened, and it startled me. <laughs>
2: yeah, you know, I was like, I was rooting for him to chop that thing in the neck. But I guess it's like, kill it, kill it.
1: Yeah, this is another direct reference to the 1953 version, because in the 1953 version, uh, Dr. Forrester, who's the main character in that one, has an axe. And when the probe comes back, he chops it off. And they Uh, use that, they take the eye back to the lab to study. So they don't quite uh, do that here, but the chopping it off with the axe, that's a direct reference to the 1953
2: version. I see.
1: But in all this chaos, Rachel is screaming. She runs out of the house. Ray tries to find her, and then he gets attacked by the tripod. And it's about to get him, because he's hidden in a truck. It's about to get him out. And then Rachel is on the hill screaming, which distracts the tripod, which goes and grabs her instead. And he runs after it. He finds this belt from, I guess, a soldier, and it has grenades on it. He throws a grenade at it, which distracts it. It doesn't hurt the thing because it has the shield, but it grabs him and takes him up into the ship. And you get a look at the inside of the ship because it has this basket where it basically is storing people for use later. And there's just a ton of people in there, not injured, but freaking out because they're trapped in this cage. And he finds Rachel there. And then you see somebody get taken up into the ship. There's like this gross probe thing that comes out of this mouth thing that reminded me of the... Have you seen the Peter Jackson King Kong? Yeah. It reminded me of those gross worms that eat some... Yeah this mouth thing that grabs people and slurps them in and he's almost taken in but these people who are in the basket i don't know why they didn't think of this before but suddenly they're gonna save him so everybody's all grabbing (laughs) each other and pulling him out (laughs) but he has realized that he's still holding on to this belt with grenades so even though he's pulled up inside they pull him out, but not before he leaves behind a couple of grenades, which actually right. takes out the tripod, which I, I really remember that scene. It was, it was really good.
2: Yeah. Somebody had to, figure to get destroy that thing.
1: Yeah. After this, they get out of the basket because the, their basket falls off of the ship as it's downed, and they make their way into the city. By this time, it's getting to be morning. It's daylight, And when they get into the city, the weeds are noticeably different. They're starting to turn pink and then white. They're almost turning into ash themselves. They're just disintegrating. And then you see that there's a tripod that has fallen into a building. So something's happening. And then they turn another corner and there's a tripod, like, staggering. Like, it can't walk straight. And they realize that there are birds, like, on the tripod which means that they've turned off their shields. So the army is there. They end up taking it out with a bunch of missiles. And then once it's fallen, you have this big crowd forming around the ship and you get another reference to the 53 version because the ship opens. At first, there's like this gross orange liquid that pours out. But then there's this alien hand reaching out that's basically just like the scene at the end of the 53 version, except... In this version, you actually see the full alien, because in the 53 version, it's just the arm reaching out, and you never see the rest of the alien inside the ship. But this one, the whole thing is like coming out of the ship, and you see the alien as it's dying.
2: Yeah, they couldn't resist. They had to show it.
1: Yeah. That's one thing that kind of annoyed me about the 53 version, was how little they actually showed of the aliens. Like yeah. you almost never see them. It's, and I guess it's probably because the special effects weren't that great, but I still wanted to see it. And you don't yeah, even no. get that at the end.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. That's from maybe Spielberg was trying to rectify that.
1: Yeah. So then you get the reunion, the family reunion. They they make their way to his ex wife's house. Rachel runs to her and they're hugging and crying, and. Behind them, you get a glimpse of her parents. And her parents are played by Anne Robinson and Jean Barry, who were the stars of the 1953 version.
2: Uh. <laughs> you only
1: see them for like a brief moment, and it didn't even register right away. But I was looking through the IMDb list, and I recognized Anne Robinson, but it didn't register why I recognized her until later. And I suddenly thought, wait a minute. Anne Robinson was the person who played Sylvia Van Buren in the (laughs) 1953 version. I wonder who played the grandfather. And then I went back, oh, Gene Barry. So Dr. Clayton Forrester in the 53 version and Sylvia Van Buren are now, (laughs) it's not like it's the same universe, but it's like they got married. (laughs) And this is them as old people. (laughs)
2: Yeah. I mean, it's like it's I I didn't even know that, but that's a that's a huge induct for yeah. like movie buffs. So movie buffs will definitely appreciate that.
1: Yeah, but definitely. see, this
2: is what I'm talking about, dude. This is what i was talking about. He's definitely a fan of that movie. Uh huh. Look at who! He, look at who! He asked the stars to be in this. Version.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad they did that. It's just a nice little Easter egg.
2: Yeah, totally. I thought nothing of it when I saw those guys. Yeah, but now I know that's a cool fact
1: yeah and then you find out that Robbie is there too and he yeah. he goes up to his dad and they hug and I don't know it's kind of awkward because Ray's just outside <laughs> watching all this before Robbie shows up I don't know the, the end I- seemed kind of anticlimactic to me
2: uh, well, yeah. Well, I, the, one of the reasons why it seemed anticlimactic to me was because it's it, it, they set up at the beginning of the movie that that family was very dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they didn't get they didn't get along. The the wife and the, well the ex-wife didn't get along with Ray that well. And now that they're reunited at the end of the movie, you kind kind of get the sense that it's like. Okay, well, they're back together now. It's Time to get back to the dysfunction. The end. <laughs> it's yeah, like, it, it <laughs> kind of.
1: I it probably won't be quite as dysfunctional now, but it didn't seem like they were as healed as an event like this should have made them.
2: Well, I feel like it would have been more satisfying if they were, uh, if they actually liked each other, and yeah. like I feel that's that was that was my critique. That was my problem.
1: Yeah, no, I thought the same thing while I was watching that because it's like, I want to like these characters, but the fact that they are so at each other's throats just makes me annoyed by them. Yeah. And even though they have moments where I like them, although I won't say that Robbie has that many because there aren't many times where I actually feel like I like Robbie, (laughs) but like Ray and (laughs) Rachel at least, They have moments where I do like them, but then they just wander those moments by fighting. So I don't know. I'm conflicted on the characters because I don't hate them, but I can't say that I love the characters.
2: No, I I, I agree. I I thought Tom Cruise and Dakota Banning are phenomenal in this movie. I thought they were very good and I thought they had good chemistry. And so I thought they were watchable and, and I liked them for that reason. But mm-hmm. that was kind of the extent of it. I'd had I didn't really feel any um, warmth or any kind of connection with the family. Yeah. That's just my observation.
1: Yeah, that's basically how I feel about them.
2: But but it was still, but it was still I thought a decent film. I, I remember when I watched the movie I thought I gave it like a 7 out of 10, that was my rating. And that's the kind of rating I usually get movies that are good. I did This could have been better. They're still good, but it just could have been better. That's how I feel about it.
1: Yeah, no, I agree too. Because for as much as the characters could sometimes annoy me, the rest of the movie was really well done. And even though it wasn't super book accurate, I mean, if you're going to translate this story into modern times, there's not really a way to make it super book accurate, because this (laughs) took place at the end of the 1800s in London, so there's not much you can do with that story unless you're actually making it happen in the 1800s in London.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I I forgive it for that. that. That part's fine.
1: So then the movie ends kind of on a reverse shot of how it opened because you have shots of the city except this time instead of people hustling and bustling, you see the downed tripods and then you have a slow zoom in on this little green bud on a tree zooming into a drop of water on the bud and you see the bacteria swimming around in the water and you have the line from the book I don't want to try and quote it exactly because I know I'll butcher it, but to the effect of the aliens were taken down, not by anything that man did, but by the, I don't know, the humblest creature that God in his wisdom placed upon this earth. Something like that, something poetic from the book, the line just said by Morgan Freeman. So even Uh, more deep and powerful, (laughs) just, I thought, I thought even though the story with the family didn't end that great, the way they ended the movie, I really liked that because I really like Morgan Freeman's narration and I really like that line. So yeah, I liked that part of the ending.
2: I, yeah. I, I definitely recommend this movie for science fiction fans because the sci-fi aspects are really fascinating and yeah. like they kind of overshadow the character development, but like, but You're into, like, aliens and, like, this technology and stuff, and it's, like, really fascinating a lot.
1: Yeah, definitely. As much as I can find fault with the characters, the movie as a whole I still enjoyed, and I would still definitely recommend it to science fiction fans.
2: Yeah, and I would even recommend it to, like, people who are action, horror, and, like, survival Mm -hmm. thriller fans, too, as they worked. It was a very good genre film.
1: yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, I guess that's all I've got for this episode. Do you have any final thoughts or anything else you want to say before we go?
2: I would just end it by saying I would recommend the film. I I think that if you didn't watch it, you should give it a try. See how you like it.
1: Okay. Well, do you want to let people know where they can find you?
2: Yes, you can find me. uh, Mostly I'm active on Twitter, so you can go to Twitter and type at edunkey2014, Eli Sanza, that's where you can find me. I'm always talking about movies and science fiction, just like we just talked about today. That's my, my favorite genre. And I am always talking about movies, shows, video games, all that, on my blog, edunkeyblog.com, and I'll send you the to that if you go to my Twitter.
1: Okay. And, of course, I'll have links as well. Yes okay well i guess that's all for now thanks for joining me for this it was a lot of fun i really enjoyed talking about this movie
2: i enjoyed it too thank you for inviting me
1: yeah i guess we will see you for another episode in the future
2: yes hopefully
0: from the moment the invaders arrived breathed our air ate and drank they were doomed They were undone, destroyed, after all of man's weapons and devices had failed by the tiniest creatures that God and his wisdom put upon this earth. By the toll of a billion deaths, man had earned his immunity, his right to survive among this planet's infinite organisms. And that right is ours against all challenges, for neither do men live nor die In vain.
1: Thank you to Eli for joining me for this episode. If you want more from him, I'll have his links in the description. Next time will be the first of a two-part discussion with my friend Nikki from Trivial Theater. Nikki is a huge fan of bad horror movies, bad sci-fi movies, just bad movies in general. So I thought she'd be the perfect guest to help me talk about the other 2005 version of War of the Worlds a mockbuster made by the direct-to-video production company, The Asylum, for the sole purpose of capitalizing on the release of the Spielberg version. And then I discovered that for some reason they made a sequel to that film, so I figured we'd just knock both out at once and get them over with. But of course, it's always so much fun to talk to Nikki, no matter the subject, so despite the films themselves, we ended up talking for so long I was able to actually make two full episodes out of it, one for each film. So, come back next time for our discussion of The Asylum's H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Every Version Ever.